Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Mike Duncan of the History of Roman Revolutions, David Crowther of the History of England, and Kevin Stroud of the History of English will all be in the same place at the same time at a day devoted to thought-provoking podcast infotainment. On June 29, from 11am to 8pm, the Agora Podcast Network will be presenting the Intelligent Speech Conference in New York City. In addition to Mike Duncan, David Crowther and Kevin Stroud, some of your favourite Agora Podcast Network hosts will also be there, including Royfield Brown of Mid-Atlantic, Ten American Presidents and How Jamaica Conquered the World, Eric Fogg of Reconsider, Steve Guerra of The History of the Papacy Podcast, Claude Myron Guza of The Cannonball Podcast, Aziz Aldori of The History of Westeros Podcast, Raven of Tiny Vampires, and Benjamin Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia. With all these amazingly talented individuals, you may be worried that there are too many for one day, but there will be three conference rooms featuring panels, talks, and laser tag. Okay, there will not be any laser tag, but definitely a full day of panels and talks from a dozen of the best podcasters on the planet. You can get tickets to the Intelligent Speech Conference by going to intelligentspeechconference.com. Mike Duncan, David Crowther, and Kevin Stroud, live and in person. Simply go to intelligentspeechconference.com. Tears unnumbered ye shall shed, and the Valar will fence Valinor against you and shut you out, so that not even the echo of your lamentation shall pass over the mountains. On the house of Fienor, the wrath of the Valar lieth from the west unto the uttermost east, and upon all that will follow them it shall be laid also. Their oath shall drive them and yet betray them and ever snatch away the very treasures they have sworn to pursue. To evil end shall all things turn that they begin well, and by treason of kin unto kin, and the fear of treason shall this come to pass. The dispossessed shall they be for ever. Ye have spilled the blood of your kindred unrighteously, and have stained the land of Amman. For blood... Ye shall render blood, and beyond a man ye shall dwell in death's shadow. For though Eru appointed you not to die in Ea, and no sickness may assail you, yet slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be. 
by weapons and by torment and by grief, and your houseless spirits shall come then to Mandos. There long shall ye abide and yearn for your bodies, and find little pity, though all whom ye have slain should entreat for you. And those that endure in Middle-earth and come not to Mandos shall grow weary of the world as with a great burden, and shall wane and become as shadows of regret before the younger race that cometh after. The Valar have spoken. Imagine, if you will, a people who have been wronged, who feel persecuted, who have struck out into the world to make a fresh start, to claim a new freedom. Imagine a nation in search of a homeland, a place where they can be secure and prosper and enjoy the fruits of their own labor. Who are you imagining? Pilgrims with buckled shoes? Boer farmers? Israeli settlers? You could just as easily be talking about the Noldor, a clan of high elves who accepted the invitation of the Valar to join them in Eldamar, the Undying Lands, where they lived for ages upon ages in untold bliss before dissension, distrust, and jealousy was sown amongst them by the Dark Lord Melkor, sparking a journey of great courage, of fleeting glory, and incalculable suffering for themselves and for all whom they came across. In this special Agora Network original podcast, Daniel Doughty from The Cannonball, Benjamin Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia, and myself, Tom Daly, of American Biography, will be discussing these elves who returned to Beleriand in Middle-earth with the light of Amon not yet dimmed in their eyes, who were strong and swift and deadly in anger, and whose swords were long and terrible. So joining me today to talk about Noldor colonialism is Daniel Doughty from The Cannonball. Uh, hey, y'all. And Ben Jacobs from Wittenberg to Westphalia. Greetings. So, uh, guys, we are met here today to discuss an undervalued Tolkienian bit of writing. Um, I think most of what we're discussing today will probably be from the Simoralian. So now, before you stop this recording, <laughs> hear us out. This is <laughs> this is worthy, and we should all you should all give this uh, a serious listen. And uh, I think you're going to get uh, a kick out of uh, the stuff we talk about today. Yeah, and uh, just for everybody listening at home, I can personally vouch for the fact that this um, was way more uh, engaging than I thought it was going to be because I, unlike. Uh, my um, two fellow interlocutors here. I was a newbie to the Silmarillion. I, um, although I had read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, you know, way way back when, and, and have read it a couple of times since then, I had never read anything from the Silmarillion or any of the kind of extended, uh, what's the term? Legendarium, I think is the term people use for it. Of the yeah. uh, of sort of you know Tolkien's other work. Um, 
and I was absolutely charmed. I thought it was really lovely. So, um, so there you go, everybody. That's my personal stamp of approval. Yeah. And I'll just say, even though I was heavily sedated at the time when I read it, I, <laughs> <laughs> I had literally broken my back. Um, but no, I, I really enjoy the Silmarillion in general. And once you've gotten past, you know, you've done the, the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings and you've, you know, dug a little bit into the universe. The Silmarillion is just wonderful. It has so much Tolkien in it. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, this whole, like, uh, Catholic cosmology, Catholic slash Greek cosmology that he sets up. Uh, it's just, it, you know, you can just see so much of him in it. And it's, yeah, yeah. you know, it, it, it's, it's the, in the best possible way. <laughs> I, I would say, like, Catholic Greek cosmology with a, with a heavy dose of Gnosticism in there. And I would have the Inquisition... Yes. Take yes. a look at Mr. J. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's there's a whole lot of, you know, emanations from uh, right. <laughs> the prime the unmoved mover, you know. Right, stuff. emanations and sub-deities. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. But to be fair, you know, at the time, of, in the 40s and everything, that was totally legit. That was very... <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, uh, I guess I that's think... true in, in the scholarship of, uh, of uh, non-Orthodox Christianity is, of course, the great... Well, the great the great boom times were yet to come because the Nag Hammadi library hadn't been uh, discovered and published yet. Yeah, yeah, so, and, you know. Yeah. So the so, so, yeah. Anyway, we can. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't know he was a heretic. <laughs> <laughs> and then just what we were kind of just chatting about, you know, before we started recording, it's you have to come to this uh, this text with a, a different mindset. If you have read mm-hmm. The Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you it you're going to expect the wrong thing. And you're yeah. going to be dissatisfied, and you're going to put it down. Uh, but, but I think, like I said, it it it's so beautifully written. Um, mm-hmm. The language that Tolkien's used, he's such a master of of, of language, and I mean, he's a philologist. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, he he thinks yeah, words, yeah. he knows words that you don't, and he just manages to to be such a, a smith with them. He, he's into he's very into the concept of prose as song. And yes. really, I mean, it's it's a recurring theme in all of his works. And, it, it, uh, you know, the, the power of song, the power of words, and that just really comes through in the work. And and we should say that if you, you know, haven't read it, it it's a series of stories. If you're going to it expecting right. one narrative, it's not that. It's a series of legends, essentially. Yeah, yeah. It's like a series of sort of like, like how I would think of it as like... Uh, we, you guys know about in the the Golden Legend, right? The um, the medieval compilation of saints' lives that was like the best selling book besides the Bible for very, yeah, yeah. like a long time. Yeah. Like we have we have more like of the of the stuff that survives from the Middle Ages. Half of it is copies of the Golden Legend. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's it's kind of like that. It's like an in universe version of that because it's like a collection of like the legends that people in the setting would have told each other and would have been how the mythic past was remembered. And so the actual prose itself is very, uh, uh, I don't want to say fable-ish, but it's, it's sort of written in the kind of cadence of, and not exactly storybook either, but, but it's, 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 it's not like a straight up narrative like yeah. you would expect. Well, yeah. he, he very consciously was engaged in a project of story building of legend building and he was very influenced by the kalevala the the finnish national epic and a lot of the you know anglo-saxon old stories being that he was you know a phd in anglo-saxon so (laughs) 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 
but we're maybe a little bit off topic. Uh, yeah, I think we, uh, <laughs> anyway, Tom's... we immediately got off topic, but uh, to, to kind of just which is but now that you appropriate for a Silmarillion show, <laughs> yeah. But now that you guys have our strong endorsement, that you should go ahead and, and grab a copy of this book um, and give it a good read. We're gonna we're gonna circle back now to uh, yeah. our purpose here today. And when you get into reading it, um, there's one definitive story arc that we can kind of zoom down on because it's a mile high treatment that that Tolkien is giving the millennia yeah. that pass uh, over the course of of the Cimmerillion story. But if we zoom in on one specific group of elves and the journey that they take and the, the actions they make in order to get a hold of these jewels called the Cimmerils, um, mm-hmm. from whence the Cimmerillion takes its name, we can we can isolate that and we can see some very familiar actions that we see in our own history. Yeah. And most specifically that we're going to talk about today is colonialism. And uh, I don't know, Ben, do you want to sort of take us through that background? or? Yeah, sure. Uh, I, I can do it, yeah, if you want. So the the, the Silmarillion is sort of split into uh, three sections. The first one is sort of the the full-on background with, you know, gods and the creation of the universe and everything. The second one is what we're going to talk about, and then the third one happens between, the, you know, sort of the other events and the start of the Lord of the Rings. So so for that second one, the, the actual Quetta Silmarillion. So to set it up from the first part, the Valar are essentially... You could call them archangels or something like that, uh, or gods, however you want to describe it. They're illuminations of Iluvatar, who is the unmoved mover. Uh, and they they help him create the, the world, and then they come down into it and join it. But one of their number, Melkor, is evil. And in the process of creating the world, they put up with him for a while, and then eventually, when elves start to show up, they beat the tar out of him and put him in prison. (laughs) So they lived in a place called the Undying Lands with the elves that they brought over. Um, The the elves had sort of emerged in the the far east of the world and gradually moved west, some of them settling along the way. Uh, Eventually, one of the the Valar found them, beat up Melkor, brought them over, um, and then uh, everything was great. There were three groups of elves, including the Noldor, one of whom, one of the Noldor was Fanor, who made some shiny MacGuffins that we call the Silmarils. Middle-earth, which was the, the other part, away from the Undying Lands, that was inhabited by other elves who hadn't made it across to the Undying Lands. There were also dwarves, ents, orcs, etc. Melkor was released from prison for good behavior and then abused his parole by forming an alliance with a giant spider. And after sowing some discord during his time when he was wandering around freely uh, and getting you know some bad blood up between the different elf, elvish groups, he and the spider came in, uh, messed up a bunch of stuff, killed some people, stole the Silmarils, and escaped back to Middle-earth. Uh, and then he began building up his power. Can I, uh, can I jump in real quick? Sure. I just wanted to add some nomenclature to this. Um, <laughs> you know, so all the elves, as Ben pointed out, uh, awoke later than the Valar. They awoke by a lake called Quivian. The group of elves, 
and you think of them as a clan almost, the Vanyar, the Noldor, and the Thelmari all traveled west with the Valar all the way to the Undying Lands to live with them. Along the way, some more groups just stopped, stopped the migration. So if you hear us talk about the Nandor, they're people who stopped at the Misty Mountains and didn't move further west into the land where most of the action's going to be happening, which is called Beleriand. Those that did later become known as the Sindar, and they're going to be a major player along with the Noldor in the rest of our story. Right. And so, basically, the, the key part of this story is that um, after Melkor came through and stole the Silmarils, Feanor, who was the most um, industrious and thus the most prideful of the Noldor, uh, he talked to the rest of the Noldor. I mean, he was pretty angry, uh, and so he talked the rest of the Noldor into traveling <laughs> with him back to Middle-earth to get his gems back uh, and get his revenge, despite the fact that the Valar thought that this was a bad idea. Uh, and they were so committed to this idea that they defied the Valar and, oh, by the way, killed some of the other elves to steal their ships, at which point they were banished by the Valar. Feanor didn't have enough ships to get across the sea, though, so he basically, in one of my favorite set pieces, um, he and his his buddies and his clan, his immediate family, got on the ships and told the other Noldor to wait there. He'd be right <laughs> back, and then he left <laughs> and didn't come back and burned the ships. <laughs> So we're dealing with just like a really, just a really cool guy. Yeah, just, just a really good dude. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, he's a character. Now, just to just to like show him up, though, the, these these elves who had already, you know, sort of made their choice, they uh, they didn't just turn around and go back cap in hand to the Valar and ask for forgiveness. They uh, they decided to walk. Now, how you might think, do you walk between? the Undying Lands, and Middle-earth, when there's an ocean in between. Well, if you keep going north, there's an area called the Grinding Ice, uh, which is what it sounds like, and somehow they yeah. made it across. <laughs> Mostly led by Thingolfin. Yeah. Um, they were not very happy with Feanor when they got down and found him there with, like, kingdoms and stuff all set up. And they were like, dude, and he was like, oh, you made it! <laughs> you guys! <laughs> oh, hey! You guys, yeah, so good to see you! So, um, <laughs> basically then, uh, the Noldor set about attacking Melkor in his fortress. Um, Feanor was killed pretty quickly, and the whole thing became a stalemate that the Noldor and their allies gradually lost. One thing I should just say, uh, I was just going back over some plot synopses and stuff. While all the, the Noldor were doing their thing, when Melkor first got to Middle-earth, the first thing he did was try and attack the Sindar elves, and they kicked his ass. They did. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and that's why he was hanging out in a fortress, rather than, like, ruling yeah. anything, when the Noldor showed up. So I think it's very important to point out that the Sindar because of what we're about to talk about, the Sindar weren't, you know, sitting around going, oh, we need to be liberated. Everything is so terrible. They sort of had, they had right, things right. in hand. Yeah. Yeah, they were doing well for themselves. Um, and then the Noldor show up with their blood curse and everything. 
McKim slaying. Yeah, and I guess we should mention the uh, that that blood curse you're talking about is the when um, so when Feanor was like getting everybody amped to go uh, ride with him across the ocean to beat up a god and steal back his gems. Um, he he made everyone swear this mighty oath, and I, I thought this was very interesting, and and I think it will have. I think it's one of those things that has a lot of resonance in this story to our own time and our, our own circumstances. Our own time, as though this is actually set in the real yeah. past. Our own circumstances <laughs> on, on planet Earth. Um, but this, uh, just for the kind of sake of like, just sort of generational grudge kind of stuff, that, um, so yeah. Fanor induces his followers to take this oath where they must at all times, you know, strive to recover the Silmarils and also strive against anyone who would keep them from going yeah. to get the Silmarils. And this is binding right. through the generations. And like, if you, and I don't know the exact like, details of it, but like, if you like enter into like treaty with people who are under the oath, then the oath also passes unto you. And like, it's real, you know, yeah. it's sort of this, this expanding morass of violent yeah. obligation. Yeah. His, <laughs> that, it, that goes on. Fanor's in time. sons will, will take this oath and yeah, it will kind of... constantly, uh, It'll constantly drive them to do, you know, increasingly desperate things, but it it does, yeah. it does affect everybody around them. No, no, sure. And to be clear, what this oath requires you to do is attempt to physically beat and take something from this universe's literal Satan. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think I think at the outset, <laughs> so it's pretty gnarly stuff. Yeah, at the outset, I think it's worth pointing out that the Noldor's entire quest is vain and hopeless. From the first, yeah, um, they they never possessed the power to ever you know, fulfill any of the oaths. Right, like, they were never going to beat him. Right, but because um, spoilers, the group that eventually beats him has to hit him so hard that a huge a continent falls into the ocean. <laughs> yeah. and the elves are great, but they're not you know continent smashing great. Yeah. Right, right. They're not. I was going to say, like, it, it is kind of like, and, and I don't know if it's just sort of from familiarity, because of course, Feanor and these Noldor are they're over there in the Undying Lands, where they get to rub shoulders with with the gods yeah, they're hang, from time to time. Out like them. they're they're not right. They're hanging out with them in this you know in this paradisical land where there's no there's no night and day, but everything is illuminated by great legendary lantern trees yeah. that just, you know, bathe everything in magical light, you know? So, so it is kind of like, on the one hand, it can be like, well, you know, what did you think was going to happen, dude? You're taking on <laughs> Satan. But on the other hand, it's like, oh yeah, but like, I, you know, Mike, you know, uh, the Archangel Michael lives down the street from you. Right. I know these people. Right. I know these guys. <laughs> I, I think we, maybe to start, we just zoom in here on a couple of these things that we just glossed over because, uh, I think it's important to try to get in into the mindset of mm -hmm. of the Noldor. So, as, as Ben mentioned, uh, it all started basically when Melkor got paroled from his ages in you know Valar jail, and he begins sowing dissension with the Noldor, who he finds more susceptible and and. It, it's something that happens over and over in Tolkien. You know, the the greater you are, 
um, you know, almost the harder you're going to fall. And Feanor, I think has been, you know, pointed out was he was probably considered the greatest elf that ever lived. Uh, the greatest yeah. craftsman, you know, he created the first alphabet. Or, or, you know, we should, we should say the most talented, yeah. you know, great yes. is a moral right, judgment. Right. Like great is a moral judgment. He's a huge jerk, but yeah, he's he extraordinarily <laughs> talented. But he had the potential I, to be the, the greatest. Right. Possibly. Right. And I, and I think you hit upon, and this is something that of course Tolkien, it's a major, major theme across all his yes. works is that, the uh it's pridefulness mm-hmm. which yes. is the root of these falls and it makes sense because of course the the ur fall like what turned melkor bad was that when uh all the valar were together literally singing the world into being according to the kind of composition that the Iluvatar, the unmoved mover had come up with for them melkor kind of felt that basically they all be everything went pear-shaped when one of those guys tried to upstage the conductor yeah. And and come up with his own sort of jazz riffs, and it didn't really jive <laughs> it with did everything. Not jive. So so the, so so it kind of makes sense that the the kind of the repercussions throughout this cosmos that was created through the, those acts are such that you know any anyone who does think of themselves as like, well, wait a minute, I know better what's going on here. I need to be the one who has the spotlight. They're going to be most susceptible yeah. to the whispers of Morgoth. Right. You know, just. Just because they're, you know, they're they're peas in a pod, right? Really. Oh, uh, yeah, and I think it's it's also worth mentioning that, um, you know, when it comes to his pride, he's also the prince. Feanor's father, Finway, yeah. is is the king of the Noldor, and uh, upon his, Ben mentioned that Melkor messed up a bunch of stuff. Uh, some of that, well, he killed two beautiful trees that gave the world light. Um, and whose light filled the Cimmerals. And he killed Finway, Feanor's father. So not only did he steal the most precious things, uh, precious jewels of Feanor's, but he killed his father. So there's a, like a double blood vengeance. Right. That, that is totally driving Feanor, um, you know, past sanity. So when he's motivating the other Noldor to leave the Undying Lands and go to Beleriand, he's not just selling them, go get my jewels. You know, don't you want vengeance right, right. for your king? And while you're yeah. and while we're at it, guys, we're we're brave people, you know, worthy of glory and great deeds, and we should be able to rule our own realms in our own name, and we shouldn't be sitting at the feet of the Valar who can't even protect us in the Undying Lands. And that is really where we're going to start to to touch on, I think, yeah. the basis for the colonization of Beleriand by the Noldor. And, and just re- really quickly, uh, as, as you know, tying into that, it should just be said uh, now before we get into later stuff that you know, given that they were hanging out with literal gods in the Undying Lands and everything, they learned a lot. <laughs> Uh, of, mm-hmm. and this is sort of a, uh, you know, an Asimov, uh, the, the highest, you know, technology and magic are the same thing kind of thing. Uh, yeah, yeah. where they, they, they're hanging out with the people who literally created the universe. So they learned a whole lot of things, uh, that people who hadn't hung out in the Undying Lands wouldn't necessarily have had access to. So. Yes, and, and those trees are important, and I, yeah. I named them for a reason because. It's basking in the light of those trees. 
actually physically changes the Noldor and the other ones, the other elves that went to live with the Valar. And so they're actually going to have a physical difference from the yeah. other ones. Because, Which... editorializing here a little bit, be, being yeah. a good Catholic, Tolkien didn't believe in evolution. He was a fan of the competing theory of uh, acquired traits. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. So, okay. So, having... <laughs> right, right. Well, Go ahead. I was going to say that's also, I mean, that's sort of important for the, uh, when we're talking about sort of the colonial aspects of the story yeah. in that there is, you know, much as the the doctrine of racism was, you know, basically only possible and was invented around the time that a large number of people of fairly obvious different phenotypes were going to interact with each other. Um, so that f physical appearance became ideologically important. Yeah. Um, I, I think that's, yeah. uh, yeah, I think the fact that the yeah. Noldor are themselves, you know, um, physically, different. physically distinct in a way yeah. that cannot be mistaken is, you know, yeah. this is important. So having seen the light of the trees, it, it like shines, it irradiates from their faces and they're greater. Yeah. Um, and, and they are called Caliquendi. Uh, and the ones and elves that never saw the trees, never made that journey are going to be called Moraquendi. So if we drop those words later, that's what they mean. But then there's also the Grey Elves, whose leaders went over to the Undying Lands, saw the trees, and then came back to get them, but then never mm -hmm. quite made it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. <laughs> so, exactly. This, we call them the, uh, the split the difference. There, there's, there's, yeah. a whole, there's a whole gray scale of elves, basically, is what we're talking yeah. about. Printing yeah. jokes, everybody. Printing <laughs> jokes. So I, I think there's, there's one passage I, I want to read real quick. It's not very long, but I think it it shows the effects of Feanor on the followers uh, that, that will go with him to Beleriand. And this is from Galadriel's point of view, who's most famous from uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy, but makes several brief appearances in the Cimmerillion. Uh The passage goes, Galadriel... The only woman of the Noldor to stand that day, tall and valiant among the contending princes, was eager to be gone. No oaths she swore, but the words of Feanor concerning Middle-earth had kindled in her heart, for she yearned to see the wide, unguarded lands and to rule there a realm at her own will. Of like mind with Galadriel was Fingen, Fingolfin's son, being moved also by Feanor's words, though he loved him little. And with Thingon stood, as they ever did, Angrod and Egnor, sons of Finarfin. Now, those are all pretty high-ranking people that they just named, along with Galadriel. Um, and you see, at the motivation, Galadriel doesn't care about the jewels. She doesn't care about Finway. She wants to rule a realm at her own will, and so do these other Noldor. And they're not going to be able to do that in the Undying Lands. Right, because you got those pesky gods, you know, <laughs> actually ruling things there. <laughs> and the, I guess the established, yeah, you know, established uh, dynasties or what yeah. have you. Yeah, there, there are actual, like, I guess polities, we might call them there. Yeah, you're right. But it's all it's all carved up. So, you know, where, where are the second sun's going to go to uh, to call up a, a hoary old crusading theory? <laughs> they can join the church. I mean... <laughs> That's right. Well, I, I mean, how do you have a church? We can just look up and see the God and wave at it. Come on. All right. We're, we're going to be accusing them of being colonizers. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
what what's our working definition of that? How do we want to define colonialism for the show? I mean, we can define the the historical phenomenon in terms of people coming from somewhere else and attempting to establish ownership of an area that already has inhabitants, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's that's a fair, I think, working definition, and it. I think it's good because it gets it gets at the nub of it when and also because the thing about about colonialism, at least in you know the uh, well, honestly, in in, in this somewhere really in Tolkien's universe and you know and and, and the actual universe we have it, is that it was an extremely varied phenomenon. There were all kinds of ways that it was accomplished for all kinds of reasons, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and we already kind of hit upon that, right? Because like the you know Fanor's Noldor are there for you know vengeance and jewels. Um, you know, Glad- Gladriel is just like, you know, well, I want to be queen of somewhere. Um, you know, right. like th- there are, there are any number of, uh, you know, reasons why it might be pursued, but right. That I think, you know, the actual, the, the sort of, uh, people moving from one region of the world to another in order to establish political dominance over, a region which already has inhabitants, which will necessarily have to be politically dominated by the newcomers. Right. And so there's also a couple of comorbid conditions, if you will, that mm-hmm. the incoming group has to be uh, militarily, technologically, politically superior in some way to the people mm-hmm. that they're imposing themselves on just from a practical standpoint of actually imposing themselves if they were weaker they wouldn't succeed in establishing their political dominance um and of course uh one of the general themes of real world colonialism has been an inferred moral dominance as a part of that um which is of course not borne out factually right but is 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 essential (laughs) to the to the colonizer ideology right say yeah exactly right and hence why the dichotomy of Caliquendi Moriquendi um mm-hmm. is, is noteworthy. Um but as Ben pointed out, Beleriand is not empty. Uh it is, mm-hmm. you know, much like Mexico when Cortez arrived, <laughs> there was oh, a yeah. a highly uh sophisticated um you know, centralized kingdom with secure borders and, and all that jazz and who'd in, who had discovered swords independently of, of the Noldor, who were the ones who created right. them yeah. in the Undying Lands. And had already kicked Melkor's behind. And had already, <laughs> already kicked Melkor's behind. And of course, we're speaking of Thingol in uh, his kingdom of Doriath, though uh, he was entirely besieged. Um, his his realm was perfectly secure, and they could not topple him. But they they were sent uh, the orcs of Morgoth. Or, sorry, Melkor. He has two names. Um, were essentially uh, overrunning the rest of the continent when the the Noldor arrived, and that plays an important role because when the Noldor, uh, you know, hit the hit the beaches, um, you know, they they do sweep up the orcs and deliver their own devastating uh, defeat and, and drive his forces back to Thangoradrim, which is uh, Melkor's uh, main base essentially. Yeah. And they set up a leaguer. They besiege him for something like 500 years there. But in the process, keeping in mind that, I'm sorry. Keeping in mind, I think it's important to remind everyone that everyone here is immortal. <laughs> um, 
Well, humans right, haven't right. showed yeah, that's up a good yet. Point. Slain they can be, and slain they shall be, uh, according right, to yeah, the words yeah. of Mandos. So they, they're able to be killed, but they don't get sick or, or get old, um, essentially. Yeah. Um, but Feanor, in fact, is killed very shortly after yeah. uh, <laughs> right. after arriving. Because, because he made a variety of bad decisions. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> he single-handedly picked a fight with multiple Balrogs. <laughs> Which is never a good well, idea. Well, hey, man, he, he is... He... Yeah, it's not a good idea, but he had the love of jewels on his side. So, you know. <laughs> I thought that would take him pretty far, but I was wrong. Look, I like Jewel too, but you know. <laughs> but I swear, after that, after that 2003 Intuition album, I just can't. It just can't motivate me anymore. <laughs> sorry, sorry, guys. I guess I should, I should explain. No, I worked at an I, I worked at an ice cream stand at the time, so I'm deeply familiar with the top 40 of the year 2003-2004. No, no, thank you. Just, for... just because it was constantly played every day. So. No, no, seriously. Forgive me. Thank you for finishing that joke for me, because I only own the one album. <laughs> I actually like it that much. Um, so. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Thingle, <laughs> Thingle. So he's he's in Doriath uh, with his wife, who is uh, like almost a Valar. She's a Maiar, which is like a junior Valar. Um, yeah. So so his people. The Sindar. She's an angel instead of an archangel. Yes. Yeah. So his people are the Grey Elves. Um, they are made greater than your average elf because they live with Melian the Maya and Thingol, who had visited Valinor and came back. So he had seen the tree. So he's Calaquendi. So they're raised right. up a little bit more, but they're not like the Noldor. Um, right. And so that creates but the situation where... The Noldor have Melkor kind of blockaded in his fortress. They have uh, Thingol in his kingdom. And then all the princelings sort of decide, we're going to start to section off different parts of Beleriand and rule them in our own name, which was one of our goals at the outset. Which, to be fair, in a pre-modern society, a feudal method of uh, land ownership and control is probably a natural thing. Sorry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it, it, just, it just kind of happens when, when kinship relations are given that much social primacy. Of course. Know. You know, it's natural. So, in terms of how this translates into colonialism, though, mm-hmm. um, I mean, there, there's all these other people there, too. There's dwarves, there's the... There's the Dark Elves, which Tom probably knows the word for better than me. Morquendi. Um, Morquendi. Morquendi, yeah. right. Yeah. Uh, what are their relationships with the Noldor like? Uh, the Morquendi's relationship with them? Um, well, let's yeah. see. So, basically, the Noldor, their kingdoms that they set up aren't just, just Noldor living there. Um, right. They sort of bring in... You know, all comers, all other elves are allowed to live under their beneficent uh, monarchies. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, and just play their part as commoners, essentially. Right. Right. They're, 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 they're never be, you know, they're, there's there's definitely a uh, an elite cast of Blood Noldor 
and then anyone else is welcome to live under their rule, but right, no yeah. one's ever going to break into that upper caste. Yeah. Now, now there we see a couple really snapshots of behavior between interaction between them. Um, and one of the little stories Tolkien tells is about a guy named Eol, who is a, uh, a, a dark elf. They call him dark elf to his face. And one of his interactions is with one of uh, Theonor's more dickish sons, Kurufin. Um, is there one that isn't? <laughs> uh, yeah, Mydros. Mydros is actually oh, yeah, yeah, a pretty yeah. decent Mydros guy. Is, yeah, yeah, my, yeah that, that Mydros guy. Yeah, he's okay. He's okay. So Aeol uh, actually stole a Noldor bride um, and kind of forced her to marry her. And they had a son who ends up destroying uh, the last major you know, city later on, uh, Elvish city later on, but uh, Kurofin catches Eol on the road one day um, and basically threatens to kill him. When Kuro, when Eol uh, calls him a relative, trying to, I have it written down here, I can read my own handwriting. He's So he's caught on the road and Eol says, if you let, you know, Lord, he's addressing him as Lord, um, perhaps you will give me leave to go and discover where my family is. Kurufin says to him, you have my leave, but not my love. The sooner you depart from my land, the better will it please me. Aeol mounted his horse, saying, it is good, Lord Kurufin, to find a kinsman thus kindly at need. Kind of like, you know, backhanded. And then Kurufin looks darkly upon Eol. Do not flaunt the title of your wife before me, he said, for those who steal the daughters of the Noldor and wed them without gift or leave do not gain kinship with their kin. I have given you leave to go. Take it and be gone by the laws of the Eldar. I may not slay you at this time. <laughs> so he's like, uh, I don't know, like almost a well, dog. So, yeah. So we learn we learn a couple things here about the society. You know, it, it's sexist, <laughs> right. <laughs> right? Patriarchal uh, is a good yeah, yeah. for sure. <laughs> right. um, yeah, but then I mean, there, there's this wider question of what are Tolkien's motivations with these these tales? Um, can we trust him as a narrator? in terms of the viewpoint that he's taking because you know in in that interaction it's sort of like the the noldor guy is kind of right-ish <laughs> mm -hmm. but also obviously he's being a jerk but like this guy like later goes on to like kill lots of people and everything there's there's an authorial motivation in terms of Tolkien needs bad guys, and he needs them right, to be right. reasonable. So, like, you know, he needs them to have a grievance. So this right. is something that that goes throughout the entire sort of legendarium, that there's there's bad guys, they have a grievance, that's legitimate, but they go they go a little too far, right? So, like, yeah, the, yeah. The, hill, the hill people uh, who attack the Rohirrim, um, you know, yeah, the Rohirrim drove them out of their land, and now they live in horribly unsuitable hill places, and they can't feed their children. But, you know, allying with Sauron is just, like, not cool. It's, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I, think, I think you're right. And, that's, and that has so much resonance for, you know, again, the kind of, um, I don't know, the kind of really treacherous 
and, uh, and, and awful relations that can develop between colonized and colonizer. Yeah. Um, just to kind of like, again, to tie it back to like what the, you know, our sensible reason for having this conversation as wide ranging and, and delightful <laughs> as it is. But no, you really hit on something though. And that, I think that's, yeah. you know, I think that's part of why, I think that's part of why Tolkien has staying power. And I think, I would say that's a big part of why his stories aren't, don't just come across as kind of bland moralizing. Yeah. Because, you know, he's, he's, again, he's writing in it. He's writing in, in a way that's self-consciously archaizing. He is drawing yes. from the things like, you know, like the Finnish epic tradition and the you know, Anglo-Saxon right. traditions and whatnot, where you really do have, like, if you go back and read like, you know, uh, romances and stuff, um, there's a lot of stuff that's just like, oh yeah. And the sorcerer was a bad guy. <laughs> you right. know, it's, yeah. and, and it was good and it was good that galahad slew him you know it's not really there's not really much much sort of there, there's not a lot of meat to to, to sink your teeth into regarding how these peoples are interacting and why right um so i think that's i think that's a good reason why tolkien still resonates you know god it's it's stuff that was written you know started to be written uh what 80 years ago yeah. by a guy who was trying to sound like he was from like a thousand years before that. Yes. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. But I, I think his own background is influential in how we might want to frame this because mm -hmm. um, he was born in South Africa and spent significant amounts of time there. His parents spent significant amounts of time there. His son ended up serving during World War II in the Air Force in South Africa. So, like, he's got a yeah. lot of links down there. Right. Um, and for And that's a guy... very... And... Oh, sorry. sorry, sorry. Go ahead, Ben. No, no, please. Finish your thought. For a guy who's educated and mm -hmm. not evil, like who's a genuinely like nice person and mm -hmm. is educated, but you know has to come up with some way to justify, you know, South Africa. Right. <laughs> um, if there's an element of like this must have been a familiar narrative, right? Sure, that, sure. That you know, okay, look. 
this this domination is not just but right. you know the you know the, the we've got ourselves into this situation where these people can't be trusted that they're going to try and kill us and all because we did a lot of killing of them i mean can you believe it but it was so long yeah. ago i mean surely right, we can right. all work this out in a in a better way than you know yeah. lying with morgoth i mean come on yeah i th- i think i think you're right like there's a um and honestly the way that uh i, I guess the way tom you were describing how the noldor polities actually uh existed you know in in the sort of their their colonial realm that they carved out that honestly like it there's a lot of parallels with south africa itself in that you had you know the 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 uber overcast of the british colonial presence and moreover but you also had further um migrants migrant populations moving into this realm that had previously just been you know in the hands of an indigenous people um, with the, uh, in the case of South Africa, the, you know, black South Africans, um, you know, the, I guess there's the, uh, you know, Bantu speaking peoples and, uh, San and Khoi speaking peoples. Yeah. The, the numerous uh, local. Groups. Right. Right. The, the numerous and varied, you know, uh, local groups who had, who had been there, but, uh, you know, under the aegis of British colonial domination, there were of course, uh, the integration of Dutch descended, uh, white settlers with the Boers. Yep. There were peoples from all around the, rest of the British Empire who would come in and set up shop under the aegis of British colonial domination and s- form a sort of middle caste. Uh, I, I think, you know, most famously, we can think about the role that uh, Indian immigrants played yeah, in the is- colonial caste system of South Africa. Most famously, Gandhi um, yeah. actually got, I mean, that was his first big gig was being a lawyer in South Africa, you know? Um, I mean, but yeah. so I, th- I, but that's, that's really, um, and actually, you know, y'all like, I'm really, um, I'm really laying bare my soul here to say that I am so little of a Tolkienist. I did not know that Tolkien had any connection to South Africa <laughs> until yeah. until I looked at the notes for the show and 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 was like, oh, damn, yeah, <laughs> that shines a, a real light on this. Like he himself spent most of his life in England, but right. the ties there were are like crystal clear. Um, I, I think, and like Christopher Tolkien, who was. I mean, the Silmarillion was just Tolkien's famously arcane, jumbled, unorganized notes, just pieces of paper stuffed in a box, like complete mess. Um, Christopher Tolkien, like even the Lord of the Rings was a mess. Um, Christopher Tolkien, after the war, came back to England and helped his father sort it all out so that he could make his publishing deadlines and stuff. (laughs) Um, So then, you know, after his father died, like they'd been working on Silmarillion for a while, but after his father died, it was Christopher Tolkien, who's still alive, by the way. Yeah, um, who's who's mm-hmm. the one who's still producing these. Uh, I was gonna say he just retired. Yeah, we're, actually, we're still. Yeah, he just retired yeah, before they cut that big Amazon deal. Yeah. I oh mean, that wow, makes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it does, actually, actually, yeah, he he was very protective of his father's you know yeah. memory and his works, but he was the one who organized the notes. And put together what we recognize as the Silmarillion, and this is the guy who spent, you know, a huge portion of his young adult life in South Africa, uh, you know, right, serving right. in the Air Force and, and all all that stuff. Um, you know, you could also make a similar argument to what I just said in terms of Tolkien's sort of 
inherent capitalist tendencies, because you can make a similar argument in terms of an urban underclass. But, you know, uh, that that is, uh, you know, a different show. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the, the influence from South Africa, I think, is definitely there. It's just, um, you know... Yeah. Even if you don't, even if he wasn't South African, though, just being you know British, and I'm glad you mentioned <laughs> right, India, right. you know, yeah. for instance, like yeah. it, you know, it, it's all there. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. even as you kind of talked about, like a middle caste, like there are other beings running around Balerian that aren't just orcs or elves; they're the dwarves. And there's not even yeah. one kind of dwarf. There's actually we discover in in the Cimmerian there's two types of dwarves. There's the mm-hmm. dwarfs like uh, you know, Gimli and uh, Thor and Oakenshield that you know we all know and love, and and yeah. then there's the ones that even the dwarves hate, uh, called nice. <laughs> called the petty dwarves, um, whom they hunted and slew. I, <laughs> if I read this correctly. But then also enter into business dealings with them randomly. Yeah, and then you, well, and the thing—I mean, you know—we're laughing at the uh, the sort of the nonsensical part of that, but that's exactly how colonizers would treat, mm-hmm. um, yeah. you know, it, uh, Aboriginal peoples, especially yeah. like very. Um, if you, you know, it's basically the more technological steps you were ahead of an Aboriginal people, the yeah. more it kind of fell into this like they're fair game, but we can also enrich ourselves off of them with trade you know yeah. like you had like with uh oh i guess with like aboriginal australians yeah you know that, i mean that's that was a perfect example right yeah. i mean they were basically treated as uh vermin by a lot of the uh uh british settler you know colonial settlers yeah. and at the same time like yeah you'd still like for survival's sake like you would need to trade for food sometimes you know yeah. it's it's uh it's a very distressing kind of kind of thing to think about just um, to uh just to make things even a little bit worse before uh, we should probably walk it back a little bit afterwards but mm-hmm. um <laughs> tolkien definitely like there were certain cultural archetypes that he was he based these different races on and then yeah you know took it away from that you know because he didn't want to like beat people over the head with this stuff yeah but, it was sort of po- points he took points of departure i guess right so his from, point yeah. of departure for the dwarves was the jews yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Clearly, he explicitly yeah. said, but like he his the letter that's uh, in public record where he talks about this, he says, you know, uh, you know, the the dwarves were definitely my stand-in for the Semitic peoples and the Jews, but you know, I made them good guys and I really like them and they're great. Blah 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 blah. You know, so yeah, 1940s. Centrist liberal. <laughs> in the 30s, yeah, though, he did tell the Nazis to go fuck themselves. Oh, yeah. That's oh, right. Yeah, that's no, right. No, totally. <laughs> He's got that going. Exactly. No. no. As, yeah, no. I always have to end up saying end up saying this somehow. I'm I'm Jewish, and I have no beef with Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> he hated the Nazis, like, up one side yeah. and down the other. If for no other reason than, you know, he was German, and he felt like they were betraying the German heritage and, like, making yeah, them look yeah. bad. But, um... But no, it's, that, it's, that said, uh, he was like pro Franco because Franco was like super Catholic, right? So it's, yeah. like... so it's you really. I mean, that's hey, that's the one. That's the wonders of the 1930s, my man. Like, yeah, exactly. Every, like, <laughs> it was a it was a rat's nest of all um, the alignments are a little place. little exactly. you know, curvy. It, it got it got it got zany. Um, yeah, definitely. But uh, the uh, but that's you no, know, that's 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 fascinating. You bring it up because like. And, and, you know, is that kind of a legacy of colonial mindset 
in that there's a very there's that um there's that trend toward essentializing right yeah like yeah. if you have you know there's a group of people we can identify a group of people and they share these traits and these are the traits that they share and this is how we can talk about them yeah. that's extremely useful for a colonizing people yeah yeah yeah. That's extremely valuable to colonizing ideology because it basically, you know, if you take away the, if, if you reduce various populations to having a range of like uh, beliefs or, or behaviors that they would yeah. actually get up to or that you can point to or whatever, that renders your whole colonial administrative apparatus a little easier to do because you can just say like, oh, well, you know, I, I'm, you know, I'm, a, I'm an Indian colonial administrator. Um, these villages are Muslims and these villages over here are Hindus. So I'll treat yeah. these ones this way and these yeah. ones this way. Can I, so I, I think whole, that kind of, oh, are, sorry, go ahead. Are you familiar with the Indian, the, the British Indian warrior mythology or, or I forget what it, I'm blanking on what it's, the actual words were, but the, the, the warrior peoples, uh, oh, the, 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 no, no, please. Yeah. Yeah. That they thought that. You know, there are certain peoples who were natural warriors, culturally or genetically or whatever, and they're, they're the, you know, they're better. <laughs> they're the oh, ruling wow. class. right. And yeah. they're the ones that the British actively recruited into the, the Indian units of the British army. Yeah, like the, the Gurkha <laughs> regiments and stuff like that, yeah. Well, the, the Gurkhas, they had a... Well, Gurkhas were um, specific. Yeah, very yeah, specific. Okay. But, but like yeah. the, the North, uh, the North Indian, um... Uh, the Muslims, uh, the right. um, the Sikhs, the Sikhs, yes, the Sikhs, yeah. um, and there were there were a couple others, and you know, apologies, apologies to any Indian listeners, yeah. <laughs> because I'm. Um, this episode is brought to you by Old Overholt Straight Rye Whiskey, by the way. So, um, <laughs> uh, I, I I'm completely blanking on the the words and everything, but. Sure. Uh, you know, these were the people that they recruited into the army selectively as part of their colonial administration policy. And it was right. like, it, 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 it's so fascinating reading or, or you know, learning about different ways of justifying this stuff. Like part of mm -hmm. it was, you know, for a conservative, like, you know, really bad guy kind of colonial administrator. It was like straight up divide and conquer. But for the right. enlightened liberal, con you know, uh, colonial administrator, it was like, look, not all Indians are savages. Right, right, right. And These yeah, are the exactly, people yeah. that are okay. The kind of, uh, well, that's the, the administration. Uh, yeah, that's the old uh, uh, sort of benevolent racism. Yes. You know, the, pater the paternalistic racism. Paternalistic yeah. racism, yeah. yeah. But in conquering, it, it, in conquering and colonizing, you need to make that designation because you're, you're driving a wedge between you know, the, the colonized right. people. And I just want to go back to the petty dwarves for a second in yes, the text. Yes, exactly. Oh, please. I you know, uh, so I came across the word uh, in, in the, um, the language of the Noldor for what they called them. They called them the equivalent of biped animal. Oh, Jesus. And wow. they hunted them thinking they were two-legged animals living in caves. And I mentioned caves because, because there, there is a, a elvish kingdom that's founded by everybody's favorite elf, Finrod Feligund. It's called Norgothron, <laughs> the Thousand Caves. And... Right. What we learn in the Cimmerillion is the petty dwarves that actually started digging those caves, and along came the Noldor and sort of just swept them aside and finished digging the caves and made it one of their 
they're great cities and strongholds. And right. not it in we've been talking a lot about the British and and that colonial heritage, but this reminded me so strongly of Patuxet, um, where hmm. the pilgrims landed found an underpopulated area, basically right. a city already in existence, and just said, well, looks like God cleared the way for us. Yeah. We're going to just build right so on clear, top right? of here. There's fields, there's houses. <laughs> this is crazy. Where is everybody? I don't right, know. Right. God there, must have made it for us. Yeah, it, there's that across the uh, the entirety of the sort of uh, you know American ideology of yeah. the empty continent just waiting right. for us to be blessed by its bounties. Is that like you do realize this whole landmass had been under human cultivation right. for 10,000 years. By the time yeah. you got there, it had been deeply shaped by human activity. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Just, that's, that's an excellent point, Tom. Yeah. There, there's an element of, like, self-delusion there or something where the, the, the native population had just been decimated by smallpox, like, yeah. the previous year. <laughs> yeah. And they were just like, well, they, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. but, um, you know, yeah. <laughs> Another, um, I guess since we're bringing up sort of different uh, sort of types of colonization and, and how it's reflected in, in this text a little bit, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, uh, there was something in notes about um, Sindarization. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And Tom, could you explain what, kind of what you mean okay. by that? And then I'm going to talk about what that reminded me of. So, uh, so, so, so the Sindar are the ones that are already in Beleriand, right? Now, there's been mm. ages and ages that separate when, say, the Noldor left Beleriand and went to the Undying Lands. In the meantime, they've kind of have a very distinct language from the language that they use in Beleriand. The Sindar speak a different language than the Noldor. Uh, the Noldor speak Quenya, I believe, and I don't quite remember Sindarin, I believe, is the other language. Yes. Um, So, you know, when they come back, at first they can't talk to each other. You know, they can't communicate. Uh, And after after a certain amount of time, you know, the the Noldor, they're quick to pick up on the language of, of the Sindar. Uh, and it's another Mm -hmm. implied implication of their superiority, perhaps intellectually, uh, that the, the Sindar just can't quite pick up Quenya. So that really becomes the, the lingua franca of Valerian is Sindar. And once Thingol finds out about the kinslaying where Feanor killed a bunch of elves to steal their ships to bring over here, then burn because he's, he was nuts. Once Feanor did mm-hmm. that, uh, yeah. once Thingol learns of those actions, he forbids anybody in his realm, and he's still kind of claiming the high kingship of all of Beleriand, but he he forbids anyone to speak Quenya. And it should be said <laughs> yeah. that he he was, before everybody left, he was part of the group that got their ship stolen and got you know <laughs> <Right>. killed <laughs> yeah like so, yeah, it was like you know. his cousin or something was yeah, the leader yeah. of the group that Thanor killed so it was personal um but what so you have this weird thing where the colonizer's language it becomes really mm-hmm. only spoken amongst them amongst themselves and, and that actually reminded mm-hmm. me a lot of the norman invasion 
where yeah, French was going to say, was yeah, gonna yeah. be the language of the court and only the aristocracy, but everyone else still spoke English. Right. Right. And it's interesting. It's, it's actually, I don't, I doubt this was intentional, but it's, it's a similar process where like the, the, the court clung to French hard until yeah. all of a sudden in the hundred years war period, they needed buy-in from the populace. <laughs> right. And then they're yeah. like, we speak English like you. And then all yeah. of a sudden English, you know, everybody forgets French. Um, you know, there, there's a certain element of, you know, the Noldork held themselves as separate until they got mashed into the ground by Melkor and, you know, everybody was living in the havens and, you know, and then after the sinking of Beleriand, the second age began and the elves moved out into, you know, the rest of Middle Earth. And at that point they're like, well, we're all Sindar, <laughs> you know, right, right. <laughs> we all speak yeah, Sindar, you know, whatever. Yeah. Um, but what this reminded me of, and this is really, uh, I, I was, I've, I've, by total coincidence, I've been, I've been reading a book that speaks very heavily to this. Um, <laughs> cause I found myself, okay, guys, have you ever thought to yourselves just how Hinduism and Buddhism made it to Java and Bali? Like every day. Like in Indonesia? <laughs> yeah. I, so I, 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 I've done a bunch of research on this, but it was years ago. <laughs> oh, okay. All right, man. Well, then you probably you probably have uh, read this book that, that I'm reading. Um, so, so I got it through Interlibrary Loan, which uh, I'm just going to, hey, quick plug for Interlibrary Loan out there. <laughs> if you go to your local public library and you search the catalog and they don't have what you're looking for, don't give up. Your librarian almost certainly has access to uh, a program called Interlibrary Loan where we can go and look around at academic libraries, other public libraries across the country, find the book you're looking for and get it to you. So don't give up. If it's not in the catalog, we are here to help yes. you out. Anyway, I, I have made um, use of that in my podcast, Wittenberg to Westphalia. So yes, it's, uh, it is easily one of the coolest things that I get to do at my job, but okay. I also uh, abuse it for my own edification. Uh, of course. So, what so job doesn't? This, exactly. So I got this book called the, uh, uh, the Indianizing or the Indianized Kingdoms of Southeast Asia, uh, which is by a French scholar who, um, well, talk about colonialism. He was a French scholar based in <laughs> Vietnam during the 1930s. Oh, um, God, Jesus. But, he, but, but as, as is so much the case with, like, for us Western people, that's yeah. our window in. Like, I mean, I can't even tell you how it, it squicks me out, but so much uh, Ethiopian scholarship is available to me as yeah. a, an English-speaking guy via Italian scholarship. Um, but anyway... So, uh, but anyway, so I got really curious about it and I found this, this monograph about, um, about this process, you know, this guy who did this research and apparently it's a lot of original research, um, actually going out and finding monuments and stuff. Um, but it was, it's this fascinating story of, uh, sort of trade expeditions from India, you know, what we, what is today India, um, right. you know, in search of gold in search of spices, you know, the, the, the typical reasons why people would set out on merchant expeditions, uh, right. especially going to Southeast Asia and it was today Indonesia, where they brought with them, of course, they had a, a literary society. You know, they, 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 had, um, they had written language, they had a codified religion, or several codified religions at this point. And the, the Austronesian peoples who inhabited that area were, but they, were, they had sophisticated societies, but they did not have writing, they did not have like these other, you know, kinds of things that were very impressive. Um, and so the the theory that this guy worked out, and that's pretty well uh, uh, supported, I, I, I would say, is that you would have, you know, it wasn't a matter of mass colonization coming from India, but rather there would be, you know, these expeditions, 
and someone might, you know, I mean, the people, you know, the local people don't know any better. You could set yourself up as a Brahmin of a noble lineage. Right, yeah, yeah. Marry, marry into the local elite and establish a, basically an Indian city-state with you and your, and your, and your homies there at the top um, and sort of imparting this culture and this religion on the, the native um, Austronesian population. Right. And that this transpires sort of independently, basically like ad- adventurers would set up a kingdom for themselves, you know, and yeah. that's how you got the spread of Hinduism and Buddhism. And you have some of the most remarkable Hindu and Buddhist architectures outside of India. It's in Southeast yeah. Asia. I mean, think of like Angkor Wat. Um, yeah. Think of, uh, I forget the name, but there's a marvelous stupa in, uh, in Java. That's just breathtaking yes. to see. Yeah. And, now, Which is interesting because think... Java is like all Hindu, but stupas are boot. Anyway, sorry. Right, right, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and of course, you know, today that that region, at least in Indonesia, is almost completely Islamized. Um, right. But what I, what reminded me of this in, the, in your concept of Sindarization is that the the peoples themselves there, you had these kingdoms that kind of flourished between, say, like 500 AD to about 1200 AD. And, you know, so that's a good long span of time that lifts this monumental architecture. The Austronesian people in these areas, you know, the uh, the people who would become uh, Vietnamese, the people who would become the uh, the Javanese, Balinese, you know, the Indonesian peoples, there was no, re- there was no recollection of these times. They had no idea that these societies existed right where they were. They had no idea that there was this phase in their own history. It mm-hmm. is so completely faded from memory. And it was because, you know, eventually you can't, with that huge preponderance of population, just like what happened with the Normans, eventually it, be, it doesn't serve any use to keep yourself culturally distinct right. enough yeah. to maintain that distinct culture. And in the meantime, you've imparted massive influence on yeah. the quote unquote natives so that there there have been a lot of religious concepts adopted. There's a lot of vocabulary adopted from Sanskrit and was today Indonesian and Vietnamese. Um but the people themselves there were so thoroughly, you know, those those form, those elites became Sindarized yeah. <laughs> in, in, in Tom's yeah. words, and yeah. and so the, even the memory of there having been these these societies just completely faded from knowledge. It was yeah. news to, you know, the, the kind of the scholarship that this that these scholars, you know, these French scholars were uncovering. It was news to a lot of, well, it was news to everyone there in Indonesia, yeah. and so you yeah. had a lot of, um, uh, you had a lot of uh, this. This of course inspired a flurry of activity among. Um, uh, scholars drawn from the local populations, yeah, yeah. And, and that sort of that sparked the second great sort of wave of scholarship about it. But it was a so, fascinating story and a fascinating sort of example of this colonization, which becomes decolonized in a way. Yeah, yeah. So, real quick, um, huge plug to the history of Southeast Asia podcast by Charles Skimble. Um, oh yeah, the show is amazing. They cover this stuff, and it, it's fantastic. Um, the other thing uh, that is that, uh, going uh, on my hit list, going to write that down. All right. Okay. <laughs> yeah, definitely do it. He's great. He's amazing. Yeah. He, he's wonderful. Um, so the, the other, uh, a similar process happened in, and this is probably more what Tolkien was drawing from. This show is about Tolkien. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, the, the German conquest of Roman Europe, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, the the Franks conquering France and the Lombards and then the Franks conquering Italy. Um, you know, the, you forget that they were there, but uh, there's there's a huge influence. Like, 
you know, the, the blood feuds in Italy and, uh, yeah. you know, there, there's a huge amount of influence in France as well. So this is like part of the, the colonization process that, that Sindarization. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's a, and, that's a very, that's an excellent parallel. You're right. Yeah. And for Tolkien, that was much more at the forefront of scholarship at that time. Uh, right. Modern medieval scholarship has sort of accepted. There's a certain amount of that that has been discarded. And there's, mm -hmm. there's a certain amount of that that has been just accepted as fact and everyone's moved on. <laughs> um, uh, so that's not talked about so much but at the time that would have been the forefront of scholarship because um, one of my big drums that I beat constantly in my podcast is uh, the the structuralist uh, the Annals school in France and everything that was the yeah. forefront that was the height of uh, the bleeding edge of historical scholarship and uh, Tolkien would have been totally keyed in on that stuff at the time and uh, the the you know, the, the leader of that movement was Mark Bloch, uh, and he was, you know, one of the people who really brought that whole German integration with uh, a Romanized population. He brought that stuff forward and really yeah. put that into pu the public consciousness. Yeah. Um, I, I find often when you're particularly talking about, uh, you know, oppressed peoples, and I, I think a lot of people in... Balerion became oppressed by the Noldor, either directly mm -hmm. ruled by them or drawn into their disastrous wars. You know, it's it it becomes important to maybe get perspective uh, of some of those people. Um, mm -hmm. It's one thing I really love about Howard Zinn, uh, which we <laughs> stole the title of this from this episode <laughs> right. uh, for one of the chapters of a People's History of the United States. Um, there is in a in an appendices of the unfinished tales, which are the stories that Christopher Tolkien couldn't manage to make work within the broader Cimmerillion. So, just, so yeah. just buried at the back of the yes, beyond. just this is in like you know. <laughs> There's some great stuff. There, there is. Though. I, as a person who absolutely loves Tom Bombadil. Buy those books. Yeah. <laughs> Heck yeah. All right. I'm, I'm on board now. But yeah. <laughs> I, I managed to come across a perspective of some of the more lowly elves. And this is kind of flash forwarding many thousands of years more towards uh, the age of people we're familiar with in The Hobbit. Because mm -hmm. just like we were talking about, uh, you know, uh, Doriath, Thingol's kingdom earlier, where Thingol is a higher elf than the people he's ruling. Later on, you get Thranduil, who is uh, our friend Legolas's uh, daddy. He is ruling even lower elves. Right. And they're, these are called the Sylvan Elves. So this is a Sindar ruling the Sylvan Elves. And these Sindar of, of Thranduil's line are looking back at their history, and they want to live and mix with the Sylvan and live as the Sylvan. So they want to sort of go native at this point. And they did it deliberately. I'm quoting here. Hmm. Uh, yeah. For they and other similar adventurers, forgotten in the legends or only briefly named, came from Doriath after its ruin. And they wished indeed to become Sylvan folk and to return, as they said, to the simple life natural to the elves before the invitation of the Valar had disturbed it. Right. So is that that's and it should be got to I just I just want to shout out to the in the Silmarillion the description of um 
Middle Earth before the 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 Valar show up. It, it sounds amazing. It's it, he describes it as, and I'm I'm gonna do it no justice, but like walking around in night at night with only the stars above yeah. all the time, and you know, uh, walking in wonder amongst the starlight and through the trees and everything. And it's uh, it's a wonderful description. Yeah. So just a. a sh- Another good reason to read the yeah. Silmarillion. So you yeah. can you can see from reading that where they would have wanted to get back to that. Yeah. And there was just active active resentment of the domination of the Noldoran exiles mm-hmm. and the attitudes they brought. Because really what's laying right underneath what Ben said is what the elves were brought into the world for. The elves were born in Middle-earth, not the Undying Lands. Uh, you can the Valar made a mistake by removing them in the first place. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. the elves were supposed to stay in Middle Earth and and beautify it. So it was the Valar that swole their heads with pride, and really caused the Noldor in many ways to undertake all the many many disasters that befell yeah. them throughout this history. But the thing is, the one of the things that Tolkien says. Um, you know, getting back to the, that first part of Silmarillion that we kind of gla- glazed over, where Iluvatar starts this song that the Ainur continue and then Melkor tries to disrupt, is that three times in the course of the song, uh, as Melkor is disrupting it, Iluvatar stands up and just completely incorporates Melkor's melody into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. And so when the Noldor. Well, that's original left, sin. Right, right. Right, well, right. Well, but, <laughs> but the thing is that. Iluvatar takes that sin and makes it part of his plan. Yeah. Yeah. So, well, uh, much like, um, well, much like Catholic Orthodoxy, I guess. Yeah, of course. <laughs> or, or at least, course. you know, I, I haven't, I haven't read all my Aquinas and all the other great system titles okay. of the church, but of course the, I, 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 there has to be some accounting for the fact that, you know, if God knows what's going to happen, he had to know this was going to happen. <laughs> of course, of course. And so, you know, this is where Tolkien's, you know, you know, Catholicism really shows, but you can yeah. sympathize with it because you know the the Noldor defying the Valar, starting these disastrous wars, ends up delivering the Noldor themselves back to Middle Earth with all the knowledge of the Valar, or at least some harsh portion of it, uh, back into Middle Earth, where then they're set up to deliver that knowledge to humanity, right? Which is then you know uh, the the sort of uh, the setup for the Lord of the Rings and everything with, right. uh, yeah. Yeah. Because this, so, this I mean, is the deep history of our own world. Like that, that's how right, this right. is mm-hmm. conceived in Tolkien's, you know, greater cosmology is that this is the history of earth before recorded history. Right. So despite the mistakes and the evil of Melkor, uh, it all ends up serving, uh, Iluvatar's greater plan because, you know, he goes and, you know, Melkor's evil breaks the calcification of the Undying Lands and brings the, the knowledge of the Valar back into Middle-earth and, uh, and then delivers it to humanity and the, the further development of humanity and the, the, the little bit of the divine mm-hmm. that is incorporated into humanity. Yeah, and, yeah, introduced by these just ferocious jerks. <laughs> yes, yeah. But, yeah. Which Total isn't this jerks, exactly yeah. how the conquistadors saw themselves? <laughs> well, we are. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, so that's actually something I'd wanted to come to loop back to in some of 
what we just said. In terms of these oppressed people, like, we can cast them as oppressed peoples, but there's uh, the way that Tolkien presents it and the way the, the philosophical argument underlying, you know, the you know, a certain portion of colonialism is the element of, um, you know, well... Of course we should rule. We're just better. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and that was, you know, at the time that Tolkien was writing, that wasn't a dead philosophical <laughs> argument the way it is now. <laughs> right, right. But, yeah, that was, that, was, that was current. It was, you know, I guess the, the sentiment um, is usually expressed in uh, with the cliche white man's burden from that uh, Kipling <laughs> poem. But, right. Right, right. But the thing... Oh, sorry, go ahead. But the thing is, it's very easy to get to the white man's burden from classic Greek philosophy. Sure. The whole justification of aristocracy in, in Plato and Aristotle is, like, direct line to white man's burden. And that's what Tolkien was drawing right, off right. of. And that's true. And it, and it shapes the way that his story is conceived of and the way that it's told. So, you know, the while we, 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 can, we can view these stories through this kind of, this colonial lens, and I think that's appropriate. And, uh, and, mm -hmm. and in a way it's sort of, it's revealing in its own sense, the, even, even as like, cause I don't think Tolkien is necessarily like a, he's not some kind of blood and thunder conquer the world colonialist. Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> right, right, right. No, 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 and, but not. at the same absolutely. time, like the, you know, there's, so you can, so you have in his actual writing, this, this sympathy for people who have been wronged, but at the same time, like, yeah, you're right. Like there's, there's also this very there's a streak a mile wide of like well to make an omelet <laughs> you gotta crack a few eggs so. you know or, or look can't you just forgive right us? right bygones be bygones you know yeah, yeah. And, and that's why probably tolkien's still you know every generation is going to find a new way to find tolkien sure. relevant i i think and that's uh probably you know for for this generation that that stuff is is certainly extremely relevant mm -hmm. where we can recognize the flaws of tolkien as a person mm -hmm. uh you know recognize how he was of his time but still find something lovable sure. in him and in his writing and his works and you know so long as we treat him as a you know uh, unreliable narrator we can still find value and meaning in, in what sure. and 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 beauty i mean we can't we can't get away from the yeah. fact that like y'all i was very surprised by how much i was drawn into it and that's that's why i want to go back and give it yeah. like an actual better reading experience than you know on my break at work because <laughs> 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 it really deserves it um this was it was really it was yeah. a really tremendous uh i'm glad that y'all called me in to to help contribute on this because it was a really wonderful yeah reading experience i'm gonna to have to actually uh give it give it a real go but i, th I think uh i think you're right ben like there's you don't do yourself any service by totally writing off an an author or a work um because of its fixing in in a time and a place like uh and i guess probably my favorite example of that would be like say don quixote is it is yes. don quixote yeah. is a work which was born out in the core of one of the most just brutally rapacious imperial projects of all time mm -hmm. with the, kind of <laughs> yes. the, the, the burgeoning yeah, yeah, yeah. Spanish global empire. Um, mm -hmm. But that you can't damn it for that. And you read it and you recognize yeah. where Quixote himself is skewering so much of the, 
uh, insanity behind that. That um, and yeah. I, and I think Tolkien and again for yeah for being very much a you know there there's there was no way he was going to be hitting the streets in solidarity with the decolonization movement in the sixties. No, but <laughs> yeah. neither is he. Sure. You know, neither was he going to be joining the uh, you know the the you know whatever British fascist organizations he had going like you know the thirties and forties <laughs> and whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that's. Uh, what a, what a remarkably fine conversation. I, I really yeah, love talking I, to you guys. Yes. I, yeah, definitely. <laughs> well, Dan, you, when, when you finish the, uh, the Cimmerillion, if you want to, you know, talk again about it, I, I'd love to. Tolkien's by far my favorite author. Mm-hmm. And I guess we've really come to an end here. And any final thoughts or final judgments on, uh, the Noldor and, and their actions in, uh, Beleriand? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'll definitely. I guess um, just to say, I'll definitely be you know reading Silmarillion in, in a in a more serious way, and actually getting at all of that other God, all the Legendarium that I haven't even looked into yet. I'm really excited about it now, guys. But yeah, I, I would say like the Nol. I think the just and it's really opened up the way we've been talking about it. The story of the Noldor yeah. is easily a much more complete and nuanced picture of a colonizing force than I would have expected from Tolkien. Um, I honestly like the way we've kind of come at it, the way you guys have shined light on it. Um, I'm walking away pretty impressed with the guy. Um, it's, it's really fascinating yeah. and, I, and it's a great window into, it's a great window into the way that imagination, even of an entirely quote unquote, you know, you know, it, it's, it's supposedly a completely distinct reality being imagined, but of course it has to have points of contact with our own for us to find it relatable. And uh, yeah, I just, it was actually a very, it's a very impressive rendition of the powerful versus the less powerful and, and how that can shake out. Yeah, um, I think this is a really good example of people who do very shallow readings of Tolkien, uh, you know, oh, it's so simple, everything's black and white, and this good guy's always gonna win. Well, you read the Cimmerillion and you tell me that yeah. there's not 600 years of suffering that would make you weep. But, yeah. like, Tolkien is very nuanced, and the fact that we could drill down into what he's actually writing and, and get, what, 90 minutes of, I think, substantive things, you know, that that goes toe to toe with, you know, I don't know, Martin having, you know, Cersei and, uh, her, his brother, <laughs> you know, be lovers. I mean, it's just as salacious. Sure. It's just as real and it's just as powerful. Yeah. Yeah. So I read Hobbit and Lord of the Rings every year between 2004 and 2016 when my daughter was born and I had this podcast and, uh, I haven't really had a chance for pleasure reading since 2016. But I, I will say that this conversation has uh, strongly encouraged me to uh, to do it to get back to that yearly ritual and uh, give the Silmarillion another read. And um, I, I I hope some of you out there will as well. And um, Tolkien is just such a wonderfully of his time person, but but in a good way. Um, it was a it was a unique moment in in history where people of of good intention could be flawed while still being clearly of good mm-hmm. intention and uh you know i i think that that's my big takeaway from from the silmarillion and from from this conversation 
Well, guys, I was very happy to have this opportunity to talk with you. Um, it's, it's just a wonderful talk. Um, you guys want to give you know, some plugs where people can find you if they don't already know? Oh, um, sure. I'll, uh, I'll start it off there. Uh, the inveterate self-promoter that I am. Um, you can find me yammering on about more great books that I halfway read at uh, The Cannonball. Uh, which is another podcast. I kid, I kid. I, I, I actually do. I do try to read the, the books there. Uh, but yeah, I am. I, I let me just mm-hmm. interrupt. I Absolutely. heartily endorse. The <laughs> Thank you so, so much. For what Thank you so worked. much, guys. Yes. Um, Thoroughly. But yeah, myself and my co-host uh, Claude Myron Guzer are on a mission to read all of the books in the Western canon, as delineated by noted crank. Uh, uh harold harold bloom um you, you might recognize him from taking an english class at any point in your life uh but it's a it's a terrific project and we have a lot of fun with it um i the, the only reason i could speak about don quixote with any authority is because i read it for that show um but yeah you can find us on uh itunes or anywhere else uh fine podcasts are sold i don't know if we're on spotify yet um i'm gonna actually have to find out how to do that but um, yeah, uh, see, we're also on uh, Twitter at Cannonball Pod, and you can also find us on Facebook. We have a, a page you can like there. But uh, if you do like to hear people talking about cool books that they read, it is absolutely uh, a, a great listen. So uh, check it out. So I'm um, a completely strange bird. I'm an urban planner by day, but my podcast is about history. Um, it is Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation, and it is theoretically about the Wars of the Reformation, which started in around 1500. Uh, but of course, uh, my podcast is still doing background. We're 50, we're, I'm working on the 54th episode right now, uh, and we're about at the year 1100. And I just want to so, jump in and um, say, I am a huge fan of Wittenberg to Westphalia. It is a remarkable <laughs> achievement, and I'm going to tell you all something. As a, uh, as a, as a history uh, undergrad and as a former history podcaster myself, Ben is the real, he's doing the real deal by going back that far. And you, you have to because it's necessary context and he does a terrific job. I mean, it's just one of the best history podcasts out there. Well, I really, really appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you yeah. so much. Um, and uh, yeah, so you can check me out. Uh, Wittenberg to Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. I'm on uh, iTunes whatever um and uh the facebook page is wittenberg to westphalia we have twitter uh the website let's see if i'm too drunk to remember the name <laughs> okay. um wittenberg to westphalia podcast.weebly.com yeah and the incidentally uh the next episode is going to be about well the, the this couple of episodes that i'm on right now are the the history of medieval urbanism so oh, my, my two hats are kind of on my head at the same time right now which is very very rare so i encourage you all to check it out thanks very much and i am tom daly uh host of the american biography podcast uh i think if you've listened to any of the former agora podcast feed podcasts you've already heard me say this but I am on at American underscore bio on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. Um, and actually, all of us just uh, joined Flick. Yes, um, that's true. Which is actually a, a pretty cool new medium. They are a sponsor of the Agora Podcast Network. And uh, it's a great place for a conversation where I keep calling it the Garden of Eden because I haven't run into a troll there yet. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is, it's pretty. Uh, it's been pretty blissful so far. Yeah. And, and also, I also want to say, Tom, that um, you are 
a history podcaster's history podcaster. Yes. American uh, Biography is yes. an absolutely terrific show. Everybody should go listen Thank to you. it. Thank you. I agree. <laughs> One day I'll actually finish the life of John Marshall. That uh, <laughs> hasn't happened yet. You know, and, look, uh, 2019's from... not looking great, but maybe 2020. Look, look far, jo- Tom, far be it for me to criticize you for taking your time on your background <laughs> episodes. But your show is fantastic and I absolutely adore it. So everyone should mm-hmm. listen to that as well. Oh, well, thank you guys. I appreciate that. And now this little love-in comes to an end. <laughs> uh, thank you all for listening so much. And gentlemen, thank you for joining me today. And uh, thanks for the great conversation. Absolutely. Y'all yeah. have a great night. Yep, you too. Bye-bye. Or a day. the podcast if it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin that was of old the fate of Arda Mared and if any change shall come and the marring be amended Manwe and Vardam may know but they have not revealed it and it is not declared in the dooms of Mandos Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.